0: Hello, and welcome to History Overlooked. So, this time, it's going to be somewhat similar in that it'll be a series of short stories, but this time, really short stories. Specifically, some tragedies. So, if you aren't in the mood to hear about any tragedies that have happened... This is not the episode for you, because I think all but the last two are pretty darn tragic. Anyway, they are interesting, and they are big things that have happened in United States history. So, here we go. The first one, the Sultana Steamboat. So the Civil War had just ended a few weeks ago, and Lincoln had just been assassinated only 13 days ago. So the day is April 27th, 1865, and Union soldiers had been released from Confederate prison camps and were on their way back on the Sultana steamboat. The government agreed to pay $5 for each enlisted man and $10 for each officer who made the trip. The steamboat had a legal carrying capacity of 376 and was carrying over 2,500. It was traveling up the Mississippi River on its way to St. Louis from Vicksburg, Mississippi. The river was at a flood stage. Water was moving quickly and contained trees and other debris, and it was really cold. The captain and the chief engineer of the Sultana had a mechanic make a quick, inadequate repair to a damaged boiler. And then, in Marion, Arkansas, across the river from Memphis, Tennessee, a boiler exploded around 2 a.m., and this caused two other boilers to explode. Then, the center of the boat erupted like a volcano. Soldiers from Kentucky and Tennessee died first because they were packed in right next to the boilers, and then boiling water and shrapnel and steam caused so many injuries and deaths for many others. It killed hundreds. Others died from fire, from drowning, and from exposure. Survivors ended up on the Arkansas side of the river, which was under Confederate control, and they were saved by local residents. One man named Fogelman, who saved twenty five soldiers with his son with his sons after the wind shifted and caused the fire to start heading up toward the bow of the ship. Overall, this explosion killed an estimated eighteen hundred, which is more than the Titanic that involved the deaths of 1512. There's now a museum in Marion, Arkansas with a 14-foot replica of the boat. So if you're ever in Arkansas and feel like traveling down to see the museum of such a great disaster, it's there. In Wisconsin, in 1871, Specifically, Peshtigo. There was a town that was a lumber and sawmill town. And this is Peshtigo, and it had one of the largest wood products factories in the United States. Nearly every structure in this town of Peshtigo was framed with timber, and the roads in and out of town were covered with sawdust a key bridge was made of wood. This particular summer in 1871 was particularly dry. Settlers were using the slash-and-burn method to create new farmland. And on September 23rd, the town stockpiled a supply of water just in case a fire came near. And then on October 7th, a fire started in the Wisconsin forest and spread to the village of Sugarbush, where every single resident was killed. Then, high winds pushed the fire northeast. The fire reached Peshtigo on April or on October eighth. Within one day, twelve hundred people died and two billion trees were burned temperatures reached 2000 degrees Fahrenheit and trees were literally exploding. 200 people in a tavern died. Some fled to a river where some of them died from drowning. Three people went to a water tank to save themselves from the heat and the fire but unfortunately and this is really gruesome but unfortunately, the uh, the heat from the fire caused the temperatures of the water to rise drastically, and those people were boiled to death. There was a mass grave of 350 people, but the birds, burns were so extensive that it made it impossible to identify bodies. This is the worst fire in American history, but newspaper headlines didn't cover it because at the same time, the Chicago fire happened. So, the fire reached Peshtigo on October eighth, which is the same day of the Great Chicago Fire in the bordering state of Illinois. So, newspapers all around were covering the Great Chicago Fire. But uh, this this Peshtigo fire was pretty pretty gruesome and tragic as well. It burned. The fire moved so fast that it was recalled to have been like a tornado, it burned 16 other towns and 1.2 million acres. All right. Moving on up to 1919. January 15th, 1919. I heard about this story, actually, when I was a kid. I must have been 12 or 13. And it was on a show called one of about really unusual ways to die. And this is one of them. I can't I can't eat this food product without without thinking about this event. So january fifteenth, nineteen nineteen there's a tank on Boston's north end. And this tank is fifty feet tall and ninety feet in diameter. But its steel walls are really, really thin and are, have difficulty supporting the weight of the molasses that's inside. The steel was flawed, there's safety oversights, and then there's also fluctuating air temperatures, which causes the steel itself to expand and contract. And cracks begin to form along the rivet holes of the steel. Children used to bring cups to this tank and fill them up with molasses that dripped down from the cracks. Inside, there were more than two million gallons, which is enough molasses to fill three and a half Olympic-sized swimming pools. The metal became brittle when the temperature was below 59 degrees, and on that day, it was about 40 And then temperature comes into play later, too. So with all of these these things that are wrong, these safety oversights, these cracks, this really, really thin steel, the temperature fluctuations, eventually it just cracks open. And the molasses, this two million gallons of molasses, floods the city. It crushed buildings, it trapped horses, it reached speeds of 35 miles per hour and flowed for two blocks. In some places, it was a foot deep. Then, the temperatures dropped at night and the fluid became more viscous, causing victims to become stuck. People say it would have been easier to survive if this would have happened in July instead of January because the heat would have helped thin the molasses. But it did happen in January and 21 people died and over 150 were injured. And at least one person died from asphyxiation because molasses is just so thick. And they say that the smell of molasses lingered on that north end of Boston for decades. So that was the Great Molasses Flood. These don't really seem like they're connected at all and i don't know that they are i'm just i just found all of these events and i think that they are interesting and big and i'm just telling them to you chronologically so next we have the wall street bombing which is a little bit more famous and you might have heard of this one so right in front of J.P. Morgan & Co. slash Morgan Bank, which was then the world's most powerful and influential bank following World War I, on the southeast corner of Wall Street and Broad Street, with the U.S. sub-Treasury NSA office and the New York Stock Exchange right down the road, on September 16th, 1920, is where this story begins and takes place at 12.01 p.m. just after the ringing of the bells at Trinity Church signaling noon a horse-drawn cart somewhat battered stops at that corner right in front of J.P. Morgan & Co. and this horse-drawn cart is packed with 100 pounds of dynamite and it blasts. The blast is strong enough to derail a street car a block over and shoot debris into the air up to the 34th floor of the nearby equitable building. The horse does not stay intact. Hundreds of pounds of metal fragments piled on top of the bomb to act as shrapnel worked in terms of what their intention was and killed people close to the explosion, as did Pillars of Flame. Glass shattered from windows also was a cause of death and injuries. William Joyce was a 24-year-old clerk sitting inside the Morgan building who was killed from debris as he sat at his desk. Joseph Kennedy, remember him? I mentioned him last week. He was a stockbroker. He was really prominent. The father of John F. Kennedy. He was there. He was there, and he was lifted right off of his feet. 2,000 NYPD and Red Cross nurses came. They came to help the many people who died, there were 38 people who died in total, 30 who were killed initially, hundreds more who were injured. This was the deadliest terrorist incident on U.S. soil until the Oklahoma City bombing on April 19th, 1995. So for 75 years, this was it. This was the deadliest. The Morgan Bank was definitely the target, But most of the victims were stenographers and clerks, not the businessmen. J.P. Morgan Jr. wasn't even in the country at the time. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch says, quote, There was no objective except general terrorism. The bomb was not directed against any particular person or property. It was directed against a public, anyone who happened to be near or any property in the neighborhood. This was during the first Red Scare, so communists and anarchist groups received a lot of blame. Police and the FBI spent three years trying to figure out who did it, but the trail was cold. They didn't even come close. In 1944, the FBI reopened the case and concluded that it was probably, quote, Italian anarchists or Italian terrorists, unquote. But others say it might have been anarchist named Mario Mario Buda who was an associate of anarchists uh, of two specific anarchists named Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti who might have done it as revenge because those two were indict, indicted for a murder in a robbery gone wrong on September 11th 1920 one week before Wall Street reopened the next day And even today, you can still see chunks missing on the stone of the Morgan building. Exercise Tiger. This particular event really, really surprised me because I hadn't heard anything about it. And it seems very big. So, on April 22nd, 1944, during World War II, an exercise began, and an Allied fleet toward the coast of southern England began to travel. It included a British Corvette, which is a small warship, and eight American tank landing ships. It was scheduled to land in France as part of Operation Overlord. The Secret Plan to Invade Western Europe. This was a dress rehearsal. They had done a practice run at Slapton Sands, which is a British seafront similar to the coast of Normandy. They had simulated landings on the Devon seacoast, decorated to look like a war zone. Slapton Sands had a maze of mines, barbed wire, and concrete obstacles. And nearby civilian populations had been evacuated. So, the British Royal Navy was going to shell the beach with live fire right before the American troops landed. Eisenhower was there to watch the exercise. But on April 27th, there was a scheduling mix-up that caused American boats to land on the beach during the British Navy's bombardment of live fire, and there were several casualties. So they rescheduled for April 28th, and they sailed to the coast to try it all again. This time, 9 German fast boats saw them, and these boats, these German fast boats were faster than the ones the Americans were in. At 1:30 in the morning, the E-boat attack began. There was an eruption of gunfire. British forces had been monitoring the approach, but were operating on a different radio frequency than the Americans, which was a complete accident, but prevented the Americans from being notified about the incoming Germans. The landing ship's main escort, a British destroyer, had been damaged earlier that evening and had returned to port for repairs, so their only protection during this gunfire was a 200-foot corvette. Around 2 a.m., a German torpedo hit an American landing ship. Lieutenant Gene Exdom, a medical officer aboard the ship, described, quote, a horrendous noise accompanied by the sound of a crunching metal and dust everywhere this torpedo made the ship catch fire killing dozens and forcing others to abandon ship the surface of the water was on fire due to an oil slick from the damaged boat while the first ship burned another was hit by two torpedoes and immediately was consumed in flames the second one the two of them sank in a matter of minutes including the first one that was hit. Soldiers hadn't received proper instruction on how to use life jackets, and they were in really heavy combat gear, so a lot of them just drowned. Survivors huddled in life rafts or just floated in the water, waiting. During the attack, the fleet scattered but only one ship and a British destroyer returned to help survivors. Hundreds drowned or died from hypothermia. In total, several hundred were injured and 749 American sailors and soldiers were killed. 749 people were killed. The operation was still to happen, so officials elected not to tell anyone about this incident because they didn't want to tip the Germans off of the plan. Survivors threatened with were threatened with court-martial if they were to tell anyone. Steve Sadlin told NBC News in 2009 that, quote, in comparison to the e-boat attack, Utah Beach was a walk in the park. The exercise Tiger was publicly acknowledged a few months after D-Day on June 6, 1944, but it was still overshadowed in the news. And this is evident when you th- realize that this is the first time you've heard about this extremely deadly attack during World War II when 749 American soldiers and sailors were killed. And then brushed under the rug. Anyway. Here we go. Part two. Of. These interesting stories. And tragic events. So. This half is a little bit. I don't want to say less. It is less sad. It's not. It doesn't feel as. Tragic. So, this event happened in 1518. 1518 in the city of Strasbourg, modern France, which was then part of the Holy Roman Empire. Disease and famine riddled Strasbourg in 1518. A woman named Frau Trofea, which means Mrs. Trofea, stepped into the street. In Strasbourg, and started twisting and twirling and shaking silently. She kept going for nearly a week. Within that week, three dozen others joined her. By August, 400 people were doing this. They were twisting and twirling and shaking silently. Local physicians said it was hot blood and recommended gyrating the fever away. People constructed a stage and brought in professional dancers, hired a band to give background music, and then dancers started collapsing from exhaustion. Some died from strokes and heart attacks, and then finally this dancing plague ended in October. Dancers were taken to a mountaintop shrine to pray for absolution this dancing plague is well documented in historical records from the 16th century and though there weren't any plagues as large as this one when 400 people were dancing due to fever there were similar other mania occurrences in switzerland germany and holland St. Vitus, the Catholic saint, believed to have the power to curse people with a dancing plague. Some others believe it was stress-induced hysteria, and even others believe that it was possibly part of a religious cult or that these people ingested a toxic mold called ergo that grows on damp rye that and produces spasms and hallucinations. But really, no one knows what happened. They don't know whether it was this catholic saint whether it was hysteria whether it was a religious cult or toxic mold no one knows but they just know that it was well documented that in 1518 in france 400 people started dancing this next story does not have reputable sources it doesn't have them i usually only Tell stories and I say usually and not only ever because of this one that I'm about to tell But all my sources are usually reputable. I cross-check. I make sure that what I'm telling you is factual so here is Here's your warning that what I'm about to say is not actually certain because my sources aren't reputable, but It's just so interesting that I have to share. So consider this next story kind of a conspiracy, possible fiction, whatever you might. But I think it's interesting enough to hear about. So, in the mid-1820s, John Cleves Simmons Jr. was an American army officer proclaiming theory of a hollow earth, saying that the earth was hollow with several concentric spheres. Sims believed there were mole people underneath the sphere that everyone was living on and wanted to establish trade with them. Specifically, he says, quote, that he needed, 100 brave companions, well-equipped, to start from Siberia in the fall season with reindeer and sleighs on the ice of the frozen sea, unquote. To slide beneath the concentric spheres, which were open at the polls, quote, 12 or 16 degrees. Simmons Jr. lobbied Congress for funding. Congress said no. He asked John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams, sixth president, said Yes. Many historians suggest that John Quincy Adams had the highest IQ of any president. So, possibly, it's more that Adams wanted the journey to the Arctic Pole rather than that he saw this as a potential to reach the center of the Earth. Others say that he believed in the hollow Earth theory, including that there were people living in the layers below their own and that he might have just hoped this discovery would be the legacy of his presidency. He had ardent interest in the natural world. Speaking about sunrise and sunset, he said, quote, The pleasure that I take in witnessing these magnificent phenomena of physical nature never tires. It is part of my own nature, unintelligible to others. But he actually couldn't really garner the necessary support and resources that one must have in order to slide beneath concentric spheres to reach the center of the Earth. And once Jackson became president, after John Quincy Adams, he nixed the project. Eventually, the Naval Observatory in D.C. was founded and helped ensure the money from the estate of James Smithson went to the establishment of the Smithsonian Institution. So... There you go. Journey to the center of the earth. Not reputable, but was something that was probably going on in the 1820s, possibly backed by John Quincy Adams, President of the United States. All right. So, Antonio Meucci. You've probably never heard that name before, but Antonio Meucci. Who is he and why does he matter? Let me ask you this. Who invented the telephone? Because it wasn't Alexander Graham Bell, which is who you might think of. So, Antonio Meucci was an Italian immigrant from Milan. He probably began working on the Talking Telegraph when he was the assistant chief engineer in Florence at the Teatro della Pergola. He might have begun lab work on the phone when he was in Cuba, but refined it when he settled in Staten Island. In 1860, he demonstrated his model. A description in New York's Italian language newspaper shows this. The Western Union received working models of this telephone, but lost them. Meucci had a rudimentary communications link from his basement to the first floor of his home, but didn't have enough money to get a patent. So, he got a one-year renewable notice of an impending patent. He filed this in 1871, but after 1874, couldn't keep renewing it. Alexander Graham Bell worked in the same lab where Meucci's materials were stored, and he got a patent in 1876. Meucci wanted his lawyers to take action against Bell, and the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case. They decided to annul the patent issued to Bell on the grounds of, quote, fraud and misrepresentation. So, the Supreme Court heard this case, they heard this case between Mayucci and Alexander Graham Bell and they agreed that Graham Bell stole these ideas and this patent from Mayucci, and Mayucci is the one who invented it, the telephone. But Meucci died before the trial began, so all judgment was rendered moot. The House of, Repres- of Representatives Passed a resolution one hundred and thirteen years after meucci died on June eleventh, two thousand two, saying he invented telephone. So, keep in mind, what you're learning might not be the full story. Lastly, this is my favorite story. This is my favorite story. I was just talking about it the other day. Nellie Bly given name Elizabeth Cochran Seaman, but known professionally and infamously as Nellie Bly, spent 10 days in a psychiatric center, with which she wrote a book called 10 Days in a Madhouse, where she exposed the abuse and inhumane treatment of people who were mentally ill by faking to be herself and living in Blackwell's Island in October of 1887. This is how she got her name out there, and she didn't stop. She wanted to keep exploring. She wanted to keep learning. She wanted to keep telling truths that were untold. So she read a novel written by Jules Verne in 1873 about in around the world odyssey of phileas Fogg, and she wanted to do it she wanted to go around the world in 80 days so she at this point worked for the new york world and she says can i can i do this will you help fund this will you publish my writings about this can i go around the world can i go on this expedition and she was told quote no one but a man can do this so she says, quote, very well, start the man and I'll start the same day for some other newspaper and beat him. So off she goes. She goes on behalf of a different newspaper and the New York World sends off uh, a man. So on November 14th, 1889, Nellie Bly sets sail. She travels light taking a sack the size of a modern day carry-on and she goes she published little bits of writing along her way and the first one that I found is quote do you get seasick I was asked in an interested friendly way that was enough I flew to the railing sick I looked blindly down Caring little what the wild waves were saying, and gave vent to my feelings. Unquote. She made it to London in seven days, then took a train to Paris, where she met Jules Verne. He said, quote, If you do it in 79 days, I shall applaud with both hands. She then went through Europe and then to Egypt. And this entire time, she was sending dispatches to her paper by cable, but she also had longer detailed reports traveling by ship to, quote, string out the story to maintain the public's interest. In Hong Kong, on Christmas, she runs into a man who tells her that she was going to lose her race. Here, in one of her writings, she describes this and says, quote, "'Lose it. I don't understand.'" "'What do you mean?' I demanded, beginning to think he was mad. "'Aren't you having a race around the world?' he asked, as if he thought I was not Nellie Bly. "'Yes, quite right. I am running a race with time,' I replied. "'Time? I don't think that's her name. Her. Her!' I repeated, thinking, poor fellow, he is quite unbalanced, and wondering if I dared wink at the doctor to suggest to him the advisability of our making good our our escape. Yes, the other woman. She is going to win. She left here three days ago. Unquote. So, the same day Nellie Bly left for London, Bisland working for a Cosmopolitan, left going in the opposite direction. Bisland told her editor no at first because she had guests coming for dinner and nothing to wear on the journey, but she went. So Nellie Bly really was racing a woman with the last name Bisland around the world trying to make it back first, going in opposite direction. One of my favorite little tidbits about this journey is that Bly stopped on the way to Japan just to buy a monkey. Just wanted a monkey. The New York world offered a trip to Europe to whoever most accurately guessed her finish time. They received one million entries. Bly's editors at the world began taking bets down to the minute on how long it would take her. The world chartered a single-car train to help her speed across the country once she made it back to the United States. So, Bisland got caught in England on her way back to the United States and lost, lost the race with Nellie Bly, finishing four days after her. But both of them still made it around the world in fewer than 80 days. Specifically, it took Nellie Bly 72 days, 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 14 seconds. About her trip, about the end of it, the finish of it, Nellie Bly writes that it was, quote, one maze of happy greetings, happy wishes, congratulating telegrams, fruit, flowers, flowers, loud cheers, wild hurrahs, rapid handshaking, and the beautiful car filled with fragrant flowers attached to a swift engine that was tearing like mad through flower-dotted valley and over snow-tipped mountain, on and on and on. It was glorious, a ride worthy a queen. So, that's it. That's Nellie Bly. Those are all my stories that I had for you today. And... As always, remember what Harry Truman says. The only thing new in the world is the history you do not know.